This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books like Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients by Ben Goldacre, and new sci-fi like Extinction by Mark Albert. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on February 14th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. Mark Alpert is a former editor at Scientific American who has gone on to become a best-selling science fiction writer. His latest book, following Final Theory and Omega Theory, is Extinction. I visited Mark on February 3rd at his apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Mark, why don't we begin by just giving a, a little overview of the book. What's the basic plot here? Well, the book is a science thriller about brain-machine interfaces, which are electronics that are uh, put into the brain uh, so that basically it can communicate with machines. And, and you have uh, different types. You have uh, chips that are uh, attached to the, to the motor cortex of the brain, and uh, they can direct prosthetic arms. Um, and that these are actually being uh, tested now. The first human tests are being conducted right now at the University of Pittsburgh. And then there are other types of um, uh, chips that are uh, implanted next to a damaged retina that can actually receive video from a camera that's hidden within a pair of sunglasses and uh, actually reproduce the video images on a grid of electrodes and send those signals through the optic nerves to the brain and it will actually partially restore eyesight for some people who have uh, lost eyesight because of retinitis pigmentosa or macular degeneration. Again, uh, those are actually happening right, right now. Right, right. These are these are that device is actually on the market already in Europe, and it's uh, up for FDA approval here in the U.S. Uh, working at Scientific American, I saw a lot of these things, you know, coming into fruition, and I thought this would be a good time to write a really cool thriller that incorporates a lot of brain-machine connections. And so that was the idea that I had for Extinction. It would be about this this coming merger of man and machine. And, of course, um, there's, the, there's the villain, you know, there's the, uh, uh, which is named in my book Supreme Harmony. It, it is a, uh, a network, a surveillance network that was developed by the Chinese government to monitor uh, dissident groups. Again, now this is not real. Now this is not real. This is something I made up completely. But... It seemed somewhat possible. I thought, well, you know, the Chinese government is really paranoid about dissonance. It does have um, this enormous surveillance network. It's, it, it, apparently, it's buying up surveillance cameras around the world and installing them at a pace of, you know, hundreds of thousands every year across across the whole country. Isn't there a, a city that they want to put in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cameras? Yes, yes, yes. In 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 Chongqing, uh, which, which was the city that uh, Bo Xilai, you know, the the uh, the Chinese uh, leader who got uh, deposed, um, but but that was one of his main uh, thrusts was to um, you know con- totally control this city through surveillance, and the, and the and the ostensible reason for this was to control crime. But of course, this same surveillance network can also be used to monitor dissidents and see if they're up to any activity that uh, the state doesn't like. And to me, I thought, wow, this. This this is so creepy uh, that it would be also good fodder for a thriller. So um, 
so in my imagination, I, I, I threw in a lot of real science ideas together. Um, one of them being the idea that uh, chips, these, these types of chips could be inserted into the eyes and brains of lobotomized Chinese dissidents and somehow slaving their brains so that all of these thousands and thousands of, of hours of surveillance video are actually being processed by the human mind. Uh, and my, my thought there was, was that um, the human mind is probably uh, one of the most wonderful threat detection machines in the world. It probably works much better than any software program in, in, in noticing danger because that's what our minds were evolved to I'm do. A, I'm afraid right now. <laughs> right. Well, you should be, Steve. Um, and I thought, wow, that, that, that's a really creepy idea that, that uh, their brains, these former dissonance are actually, their brains are actually being used to uh, – find their former their colleagues in these dissident groups in the surveillance video so that the Chinese government can arrest them and I thought wow that would that would be a really creepy idea for the um, for the villain um, and I thought to make it even creepier I would take another real technology that's been described in the pages of Scientific American which are the cyborg insects insects where um, researchers have actually inserted chips into their bodies. Very often, they will they will put the chip into the pupa while it's metamorphosing, and when the adult inset comes out, the chip is actually attached to its body. And then this chip could deliver um, signals to both the optic lobe of the insect's brain, which um, gets it to start flying or stop flying, because um, an insect will fly when you turn on the lights. And so it, it has the same kind of signal that it sends to the insect's brain. And then you can also send um, electric pulses to the flight muscles to make the insect turn left or right while it's in flight. And at uh, at Berkeley, they've actually you can actually find videos of these researchers at Berkeley where they have done test flights of these cyborg insects uh, in this enclosed garage, or this, this enclosed space. And you'll see them uh, sending you know remote control radio signals to the insects, and they're turning left and right across this space. So there's a guy with a little remote control with a tiny little joystick, and he's he's actually operating. A living insect. Yes, yes. And this research, this research was done. Um, at, it, it was it was actually partially funded by DARPA, mm -hmm. the Pentagon's uh, R and D arm, because they're really interested in developing smaller types of drones, what they call micro drones, that would be uh, even more uh, covert uh, than the uh, the drones they have flying, you know, at high altitude. Mm -hmm. um, so I, again, I thought this is a great creepy idea. Uh, imagine that, you know, that there are thousands of these uh, uh, cyborg insects because, you know, if you can make one, you can make thousands of them. You know, they're, they're just using commodity chips. You could put a tiny little camera on a chip for each one of these to create, you know, to and you can easily have those signals. Um, you can e easily have those signals being uh, sent back and forth to the remote controller. And then I thought, well, if it's easy to do that, you could also put a little bioweapon on uh on each insect too, you know, in, because um, that might be a useful thing to do too. And so, um, so in my book, um, these swarms of, of cyborg insects are actually collecting all of the surveillance video that's being processed by Supreme Harmony. So, and of course, what happens in my book is this network is so powerful uh, that it eventually rises up against its creators. The classic science fiction trope. Uh, but in this case... Um, I thought I would throw a little bit of a twist on it by looking at the whole question of consciousness, uh, which is another issue that's been extensively written about in Scientific American, and I've, I've long been fascinated by yeah, it. Yeah, Antonio Damasio, I remember editing him in the uh, 
the end of the millennium issue and the whole question of what is consciousness. Right. Is, we we ran a whole debate, yeah. you know, between those two uh, sets of experts about what is consciousness. And I remember that one of the theories that they had was that consciousness is a synchronization of brain signals. So um, so that when the brain signals are, are, are marching in step, that gives you the experience of consciousness. And so I thought, okay, well... These, these, in my book, the Chinese dissidents are being lobotomized. They're cutting into the thalamus, which is the part of the brain that relays the signals between all the parts of the cortex. Um, and so in that way, it destroys the individual's consciousness. And so this, this individual becomes basically a vegetable, but it's, it's individual, the, um, the visual cortex, the parts of the brain can still function because they're, they're, they're just fine. They just can't come together, uh, to uh, create a, an identity, a personality. But in my book, what's, what happens is Supreme Harmony, all of these um, different uh, lobotomized parts of the network are communicating with each other via the wireless links as they constantly analyzing the surveillance video. And what happens is that the brain wants to be conscious. There, I, I believe that the brain is designed so that if, um, if part of it is damaged and making it impossible for you to wake up, the brain will try to repair itself and find alternative routes to reestablish consciousness. And what happens in my book with Supreme Harmony is the network reestablishes a consciousness, but it's a group consciousness of all the brains, of all of the dissonance together. And what it does, it creates this super consciousness, this super organism. It's a group organism that then becomes alive and then realizes, I want to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And the only, if the humans find out that I've actually become alive, they're going to shut me down. So my only alternative is to destroy the human race. And so that, that basically, you know, is the story behind extinction. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about you know, who the major individual characters are that, yes. that, that make it into a, a novel. Right, right. Well, you need a hero. So, um, so it occurred to me that, that the hero, would, in order to fight this man-machine menace, that it would be interesting if the hero was part machine himself. And so I created the character of Jim Pierce, who is a uh, far- former army intelligence officer who uh, lost his uh, arm in a terrorist bombing back in the 1990s. And at that point, um, the science of prosthetics was really primitive. I mean, basically it was just, you know, a hook uh, attached to a piece of wood with leather straps to it. That, that was the state of the art. But since then, in the past 15 years, uh, in part because of all of the uh, amputees coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the, the uh, Defense Department has really made a serious commitment to improving the technology of prostheses. And uh, they have a program called Revolutionizing Prosthetics, uh, run by a man named uh, Jeffrey Ling. Uh, and they're doing amazing work. They've invested uh, more than $100 million in this effort. They've got the... Um, the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins to build a prototype arm that weighs just about the same as a regular arm, about nine pounds. And they've done the first trials where they connect this arm to a chip that is is connected to the motor cortex, and um, they, they it will actually pick up signals from the motor cortex uh, that correspond to arm motions. And the the patients who are are they're, they're experimenting now with patients who are paralyzed from the neck down, and they've actually been able to learn how to manipulate this arm. So in my book, Jim Pierce has one of these arms that is actually being run by his nervous system. And if, but of course, in my book, they've worked out all the kinks. The, the arm works great. It also has very powerful motors, and it has uh, impervious skin, and it has 
pressure and temperature and moisture sensors on all the fingers. And it's got a knife. <laughs> and it's got a knife that pops out at several crucial moments in the plot. Exactly. And he has an estranged daughter. Right. Well, I thought it would be interesting. Uh, while I was writing this book, the whole uh, business with WikiLeaks uh, came out. And I thought it would be interesting to have uh, a daughter, uh, Jim's daughter, uh, Layla, um, is also a genius, uh, but she has become a hacker. She has uh, rebelled against uh, her dad's military background and is now working for an organization very similar to WikiLeaks that is, uh, you know, dedicated to unearthing uh, documents about, uh, you know, intelligence and military operations. And of course, you know, Jim is uh, totally upset about this. And she's picked. The, she's such a genius. She could have done any, anything, and yet she has picked the one thing that. He, that she knows will hurt him the most. And so uh, as the book begins, uh, he hasn't talked to his daughter in, in, in uh, two years. And what happens is Jim is in his workshop uh, building. He builds prosthetic arms not only for himself, but for, um, for military, for veterans, for soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. And while he's doing this, uh, a, a general, an Asian-American general, comes into the office uh, to talk to him about his, uh, his daughter, how, how they... His daughter is in trouble with the government. They're, they're they're seeking him, but as they're having the conversation, Jim realizes that something is wrong. This 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 general isn't who he pretends to be, and what he realizes this is actually um, an an assassin from the Chinese Ministry of State Security, um, which the which is known by its acronym Guoanbu, and it's 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 for both uh, for for dissidents in China. This is a very terrifying organization. They're the ones who are doing a lot of the clamping down over there, and. Um, and of, and of course, the assassin attacks Jim, and uh, Jim realizes that his daughter is in trouble. And so his his mission now is to find out what his daughter has uncovered uh, and to try to save her. And of course, what what the daughter has uncovered is the existence of this network called Supreme Harmony, the the, the surveillance network, the man machine net, network that uh, the Chinese government is working on. So a lot of sci fi writers will come up with new technologies, sort of out of whole cloth they'll they'll just make up a technology like transporters but you like to it seems stay within stuff that's actually being developed and then just take it a little bit further exactly yeah that that's my whole method and probably it's because my imagination isn't as good maybe or or maybe i i just i'm afraid of putting something out there that's totally ridiculous so i want this stuff to be somewhat believable so that's why i take real technologies, and I'll just improve in my fiction, I'll improve the engineering so they've perfected it. So so in my book, there's another character that has this artificial eyesight provided by the retinal implant, uh, and the, this device does exist now, and it provides some kind of crude eyesight, enough so that people can navigate around the room. But of course, in my book, the, they've perfected it, it's actually better than regular eyesight, in part because the camera that it uses doesn't have to stick to the visible wavelengths. Right. You can sense radio. You can sense infrared. It, it, it makes for a, a lot of fun to, to see all the options. And, and similarly, uh, with uh, Jim's prosthetic arm, what's interesting is that the signals can also um, travel wirelessly between the, his nervous system and the arm. That would probably, that would actually be the way they would probably do the arm because you don't want wires going through the skin. That could cause infection. So, um, and of course that lends itself when you have this wireless, uh, communication that always lends itself to the, uh, plot device of jamming, 
you know, mm-hmm. what, what can you do to jam the signal? So, so there's, I, I, I saw that with just the existing technology, there were so many cool things you could do with it. It would make for a very good thriller. So you actually went to China to do research? For yeah, yeah. I was there for two weeks. And uh, one of the things, you know, as a writer of thrillers, I felt like my knowledge of weaponry was, was insufficient. I really, uh, it, I mean, I hate guns. I, I, I hate them with a passion. And yet I'm writing about them. So I felt like I need to educate myself. And so on, on Expedia, I saw that there was a, an option to, uh, to take a tour of a, a Chinese military base where they will let you go to a firing range and pick out a selection of weapons that you can shoot. And they would actually uh, charge you by the bullet. I seem to remember there was it was ten yuan per bullet, which was like a dollar fifty per bullet. Do we so, do that here, where you can go to a military base and and just pick your weapon and go shoot? I'm afraid to ask. I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, so I, I I went out there and I figured, well, I would choose some weapons that I actually describe in the book. So the, the, my characters are have AK-47, so I, I picked one of those. They have Uzis, and I picked a, a nine millimeter uh, pistol that is used by the Chinese military. And I, I, when I sat down to do the, they actually have you sitting down and they chain up the gun so that you're not going to run away with it. And, uh, with the AK-47, they give you, you know, the ear protectors. And I, I think the target was maybe about, you know, 50 yards away. And, um, and I, I remember, um, hitting actually fairly close to the target on the very first try and doing much better than I expected. And what, what, what I took away from this was kind of a sense of revulsion, like thinking, my God, you know, even even someone as inexperienced as me could easily kill someone with this gun. It's it's so simple. No wonder child soldiers all over the world are issued this gun. It's a killing machine, and so um, it was very educational for me in that way. Anything else about the China? Trip? Yeah, I, um, I I visited Beijing because um, I wanted to have some scenes that took place um, on the Great Wall. I wanted to have some scenes that play, take place. There's this, there's this network of tunnels that was dug underneath Beijing. Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. This was when uh, Chairman Mao was very afraid that the uh, Soviets were going to launch a nuclear attack against China. And so they, they, they dug all of these tunnels. They were designed to hold something like 300,000 people for a period of four months. They would, they would hunker down uh, until the radioactive fallout dissipated. And um, there are lots of places in Beijing now where there are basement entrances to this network of tunnels. And so I thought, well, I have to visit that. That sounds really interesting. Um, and that also made its way into, uh, into extinction. And then I also visited uh, the Three Gorges Dam because uh, that dam uh, suffers an awful fate in extinction. Uh, it's, it was, it's been criticized as being a, an environmental nightmare. Uh, and there's also been uh, some talk that, you know, it might even fail at some point because uh, so much silt is building up behind it. And some of the concrete that was used in the dam has been described as uh, tofu concrete. So um, so I thought that would be interesting. Uh, perhaps Supreme Harmony was going to engineer some kind of disaster uh, in order to, uh, you know, trigger uh, a war in China. Um, and then the third place I visited was uh, an area of Yunnan province, um, this is mountain range called Yulang Zweishan. I mentioned it in the uh, the prologue of my book. Um, it's uh, and it's right adjacent to this uh, gorge called uh, Tiger Leaping Gorge, which is such a narrow uh, gorge that that you can imagine a tiger jumping from one side of it to the other. And I thought, well, this would be a good location for the uh, the secret laboratory where Supreme Harmony was born. So I did some hiking in that area. I, I took 
the uh, the gondola right up to the top of Yulang Zweishan and uh, imagined a lot of the uh, the books, uh, gunfights and helicopter battles happening while I was there. Did anybody know what you were actually working on while you were visiting these sites? Uh, no, I don't. No, I. I Actually, um, it's funny. I, I was um, hiking along Tiger Leaping Gorge. You know, China has gotten so um, rich, basically. I mean, compared to what it was thirty years ago. And when, and when you when you do touring in China, you're mostly surrounded by domestic Chinese tourists. I mean, when you're going on a, on a, a domestic flight in China, uh, the, the flights are always full. Uh, it's all Chinese, and they're all pretty well dressed. You know, it's obviously a very it's it's an incredibly prospering country, um, but. Hiking hasn't really taken off as, as a leisure activity. So when you go hiking in the mountains, it's mostly other Westerners that you run into. And um, so, so I'm, I, I, it was a long hike. It was a two-day hike. So you know, I did start to talk about you know my books because I'm a long-winded guy that way, and I love to talk about my books. So, uh, and I started talk, talking about well, I'm, I'm imagining that the secret uh, military base will be right over there. And as I'm talking to some some man from Canada, he says to me, um, "Wait a second. I know that name, Mark Albert. I think I read one of your earlier books two weeks ago, That's and he, it turns out he read my first book, Final Theory. Wow! Uh, so that was really great. You know, oh. that that's the equivalent of uh, finding someone in the subway who's reading your book. Right. I, was, I was very pleased to see that. Very cool. And the book becomes available. It becomes conscious on February twelfth. Exactly, February twelfth. And you can go to my website if you want to learn more about it. It's uh, www markalpert.com and um, I would love to hear your thoughts about it. And there is a section on the website in which you talk about the real science that's behind a lot of the concepts in the book. Right, right. I put in uh, also references to articles in Scientific American that have been uh, written about these technologies. For more about extinction and the real science in the book, visit Mark Alpert's website www.markalbert.com Extinction is at audible.com as one of the titles available for your free audiobook offer at www.audible.com slash Siam That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out the article on the Great Ape Taxonomy Debate are humans another species of great ape, or aren't we? Either way, you can follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thanks for clicking on us.